everyone. I'm Bailey. I'm Drew. And I'm Lacey. And, and we're, we're sarcastic, sarcastic, so let's get sinister. for you can't wait to hear it what kind of story murder oh that was the perfect reaction thank you (laughs) i'm gonna tell you guys about jack the ripper what Uh, it got a little out of hand who you'll learn never heard of old jack good old leather apron is this a famous guy oh he's english that's probably why i don't know Mm -hmm. i think he's english right Well, I mean, the murders happen in England. Oh, true. We don't know who he is. We don't know who he is. Maybe we will by the end of this podcast. I'm going to say doubt it, but... It's been how long since the murders? 1800s, I think. Correct. So when I started looking into Jack the Ripper, I, I I knew it was a big one. I knew there was a lot there. I still had myself convinced that I could condense it to an hour. And then my notes got out of hand. Um, she told me earlier that for part one she has 16 pages and I was like oh that's two parts love Aww. so we'll see how many this parts might it is? be a part two episode maybe might? not I don't want to lock you guys into a certain number so I feel we'll like we should just aim for two parts that's my goal is to aim for two parts um, so in the first part I'm going to give you a little bit of background about the time period and then talk to you about the victims Oh, I love a background of a time yeah. period. And I uh, I did realize when I started to research, and I was talking to Brandon about it, that I didn't know a whole lot about the victims. And that's what he was saying. He just knew that they were, like, lived in the bad part of town. That was pretty much it. And I was like, yeah, I knew that they were prostitutes, but not information about them. So I've got some more information about them. I'm pretty sure they were only turning to prostitution because, like, shit was so bad. Oh, Very bad. Jump ahead of the Sorry, I'm just saying. I don't want people to think that we all have the same mindset of lazy, that these women were just prostitutes. They were mothers. And sisters. And daughters. Yeah, but, like, mainly, the thing that I would, like, the the one that I, like, cling to or emphasize most is the mothers, because that means that they're leaving behind dependents. Yes and no. Okay. So, no. I think some of them were older. This, um, I'll just say the story, but the murders took place in the Whitechapel District of London, which is in East London. Um, and I have, no, I don't. <laughs> it takes place in the fall of 1888. There is some discrepancy about which victims actually belong to the one killer. Um, but the five victims that are most commonly attributed to Jack the Ripper all were in the fall of 1888. Um, at the time, he wasn't called Jack the Ripper. That nickname didn't come in until somebody wrote a letter to the media and signed it Jack the Ripper. Before that, he was called the Whitechapel Murderer or Leather Apron. It's like so, BTK, giving himself a name. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, so this takes place in mid-19th century, right? 1888 is when this was going on. At this time period, there were a lot of Irish immigrants who had moved to England because of the famine in Ireland, um, which took place in the 40s into the 50s. So big influx of Irish immigrants, 
the population of the major city started to swell. Um, I'm saying it's the Irish fault. Just telling you why there are a lot of freaking people in Whitechapel. Then, in the early 80s, Jewish refugees fleeing Eastern Europe also moved into the same areas. So the population of the cities jumped up in a big way in the mid-19th century. Um, Whitechapel became really overcrowded. By 1888, when the murders happened, there were approximately 80,000 people. And this is just one district. I know, we're looking at it right now. On the map. Oh, did I tell you to go there yet? No. Oh, you're looking at Whitechapel. You I'm looking. I'm looking at okay. a map. So you're yeah. moving ahead in the slides. Which um, okay. I, when I was in London, <laughs> um, I was near there at visiting the Tower of London. I never went into Whitechapel though. Yeah. I did. Um, when I was in England in tenth grade, we did a Jack the Ripper tour. I did. They still do that. Yeah, I would. I would do it again. It was very informative. It was very, and it was like at nighttime. Mm-hmm. I remember getting a little bit emotional because she was like descriptive about the victims and I'm emotional. Yeah. <laughs> um, so anyway, Whitechapel, very overcrowded. And at this time, an underclass developed, which I didn't know was a thing. So we usually think of people as upper class, middle class, lower class. Underclass is below lower class. So like extreme squalor, extreme poverty, living on the streets, um, whatever you picture as lower class. Underneath that is the underclass and it's developed in Whitechapel. Um, in the East End, 55% of children would die before they were five. So there was an over 50-50, over 50% chance that your child would not make it to five years old. A lot of women turned to prostitution to survive. And by October of 1888, the police said that there were around 62 brothels and 1,200 female prostitutes just in Whitechapel. So times were, times were rough. There were, um programs that were almost like government assistance like shelters that started popping up during this time period if you flip to slide number two oh i can actually go through the slides now yes i'm gonna tell you when don't just go through i like that the first slide says don't look yet i wanted everything to be so slide two yeah where it says penny set up the first picture here i'll delete don't look yet so now oh so slide one so if you paid a penny and they used pennies for this i don't know if what i was reading had been americanized and it was supposed to be pence i'm just going to call it penny because that's what they were calling it if you paid one penny you could stay at a penny sit-up which was what this looks like all these benches you could sit up on a bench overnight you were not allowed to lay down to sleep Uh, you would get food when you did this too so you would get food you could sit up basically this was just to have shelter overnight so like if the weather was really bad and you were homeless but you didn't want to stay outside because of the weather you could stay to sit in here you just weren't allowed to sleep i'm noticing in this picture it seems they are all men well that picture i think that they were probably well i I don't know that i was going to say probably male and female but there was in this picture before you explained it i was like oh god a penny sit up like just some kind of like brothel because they're all sitting like towards like yeah it almost looks like a giant church congregation too that too like a barn um if you go to the next one that says two penny hangover can i go to the next one yeah okay if you paid two pennies you would get food and then you would sit on a bench and it had this rope tied across it so you could sleep if you leaned over the rope so you couldn't lay down so they could still pack just as many people on the bench you could only hang over the rope to sleep. Who were the people that were just randomly taking photos of this? Don't worry about it. Okay. People who needed the advertising mm. for the magazines. I got off. I went down so many rabbit holes doing Jack the Ripper because of all this historical stuff. I had to stop myself. You were what? 
And then... Oh, you went down rabbit holes? The next slide, number three. If you paid four pennies, you could stay in the coffin house, where you were actually allowed to lay down and sleep in these coffin-sized boxes. And as you can see, they could fit quite a few in the building Mm -hmm. by making them so tiny and claustrophobic. So, just, you know, some background of how things were at the time period. It It was rough times. Um, because of the quality of life there, as well as the immigrants who had moved in, there was a lot of social tensions, a lot of racism and anti-Semitism going on, um, public unrest. There was often, there were protests, there were anti-police protests. It was, it was a rough time. And Whitechapel was considered a den of immorality. And then Jack the Ripper or the Whitechapel murders just made it worse. It was already not viewed positively. The West End was much better. Um, but after the, the Whitechapel murders, Whitechapel? Mm, London, oh, East End, okay. West End, um, Whitechapel's in the East End. So, between 1888 and 1891, there were 11 murders in Whitechapel and Spitalfields, which was a neighboring district. They were very, very close together, um, but they could not all conclusively be connected to the same killer. So at the time, the police dockets called the Whitechapel murders these 11 murders. However, there are only five that are kind of widely considered to be attributed to Jack the Ripper. What are they called? What? You know, it's the, the, it's like... The canonical five. Canonical. Yeah. Um, what is that? Yeah, it was, it's canonical. It's canonical. What's that? Hello. <laughs> uh, it's a quote from somebody. How do you spell it? I'll look it up. Um, C-A-N-O-N, like canon. C-A-N-O-N. So these are canon. And then... C-A-N-O-N I-C-A-L You move on, I'm going to look for this. Okay, so I'm going to tell you guys about the canonical five, who are the five who are most widely considered to be Jack the Ripper's victims. So of the 11 murders, so 1 through 11, these five women were 3 through 7. So there were two murders first that they think probably were separate, and I'll tell you about them later. And then another four afterwards. I'm going to start with the canonical five. I'm going to give you background about these women and then tell you about the other ones later. So if you go to the next slide, this is actually a map of where the canonical five plus a random one thrown in there. Um, This first one I'm going to tell you about takes place at the top right. That's Mark Buck's row. So this is our first murder. So our first victim... You can actually go to the next slide. I got Ooh. some her before she was dead. The oh, one all the way to the crazy. right is kind of cool. There's this website that takes Victorian photographs and tries to make them a little bit more modern, which is why it isn't as blurry and stuff. But um, so Marianne Nichols, who went by Polly, she was born August 26, 1845. She was the second of three children. Her dad was a blacksmith and mom was a laundress. When she was 18, she married a nam. No. When she was 18, she married a man named William Nichols, who was a printer's machinist. It was only a small wedding ceremony with two witnesses, and they had five children. Oh, I meant to preface this whole thing by telling you guys I'm fairly certain that in the 1800s, there were 20 names. There were 20 names that you could choose from when you had your baby. And you'll see why, because those are the only names that anybody was named. So Mary Ann Nichols, she married William. Their children were Edward John. Percy George, Alice Esther, Eliza Sarah, and Henry Alfred. In the fall of 1880, they separated. 
Now, Polly's father, Marion Nichols' father, said William had an affair with the nurse who helped deliver Henry. Henry was the youngest. He was born in 79. They separated in 80. So her dad said, well, he had an affair with the nurse who helped with the baby, and that's why they split. William, however, claims that they had been having issues because of Polly's drinking, and she left him, which is when he had an affair, because she had already left. But anyway, he took the children. So she was on her own. He had the kids. Um, Later, he also told the police that she had already started turning to prostitution while they were still married. And he also didn't love that. So. I think uh, that's reasonable to not love that. Yeah. (coughs) Excuse me. So um, he has the kids. He's doing his own thing. She's doing hers. She starts to collect a police record for drunkenness, for disorderly conduct, and yes, for prostitution. She was back and forth between living with her father and living in a workhouse. So that one picture on her slide, that's a whole line of women lined up. Mm -hmm. That's just a picture generally of a workhouse at the time period. It was like government assistance. So if you couldn't afford to live on your own, you could live there and they would give you work in exchange for housing. Um, She was getting alimony. They didn't call it alimony then, but he was like legally obligated to support her after they split of five shillings a week. Until the spring of 1882, when he found out that she was working as a prostitute. Now, not just, like, here and there, like she'd been, he claimed when they were married, but she was, like, that was her main source of income. And so he went to whatever the legal channels were, and it turns out you are not legally required to support your spouse if they're making money illegally. So he was able to prove that she was prostituting. I don't know if that's, like, the verb for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But since she was, he didn't have to give her money anymore. I mean... I, like, I kind of see, she left him, so I would see why he wouldn't want to support her anymore. Plus, he had all five of the kids. He had all the kids. She was no longer. But in her, on, in, sucks for her. Yeah, not great for anybody. I mean, yeah, probably better for him in this situation, but. Um, So by 1887, now she is just earning money through prostitution because her, Um, alimony money isn't coming in anymore. By 1887, she was in a relationship with a widower named Thomas Stewart Drew. Hey! Yeah. It was pretty tumultuous. They were back and forth. They argued. She would move in with him. He would kick her out. Fun. Um, by December of that year, she was living on the streets. So December 1887, she was homeless. April 1888, she was working as a domestic servant. And she wrote to her father a letter when she first started. She was very happy there. The people were kind. They were teetotalers, which means not drinkers. So she had to either hide her drinking or try to curb it. Teetotaler? Yeah, teetotaler. It was people who don't drink. Which I have heard the word used just as people who are very strict about rules. Oh, I thought they were just like um, really into tea. <laughs> T-E-E. It's, it and it's just job. one word. I've, I've heard it used as people who are very strict with the rules, which is what I thought it was. And it kept coming up when I was doing my Jack the Ripper research. So I was like, I don't think that I have the original definition. And it was people who did not drink for personal or religious reasons were teetotalers. I'm going to start using that as an insult. <laughs> you teetotaler! Why are you yelling at me? I'm sorry. She's insulting you. You're aiming effect. your direction. You're aiming your insult the wrong person off. Because she drinks. You teetotaler! Ugh. Not anymore. What? Anyway. Lens over. Um, so, where was I? Oh, so she wrote her father a letter. She was very happy working there. They were nice, even though she wasn't supposed to be drinking or whatever. She was having a good time. Uh, three months later, she stole some clothes and left. So She stole clothes from them? From them, yeah. And left. 
by the summer, she had moved into a lodging house in Spitalfields. So lodging house was kind of like, like government assistance kind of, except there was no like work in exchange, mm-hmm. just very, very cheap housing. Sometimes you would like literally share a bed with somebody else. Yeah. Um, she was, she was sharing a bed with a woman named Nellie Holland, Emily Holland, but she went by Nellie. So that was summer of 1888. <clears throat> August, she moved into another lodging house in Whitechapel. So Spitalfield and Whitechapel right next to each other. She just happened to move and they would kind of bounce from one to another as they had money and whatnot. August 31st, 1888. Mm-hmm. Around 12.30 a.m., like she left yeah. the frying pan public house. This is when I learned that pub is short for public house. So she was at the pub. And she left around 12.30 a.m. Was she? Was she like a drunk? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, remember, when they were married, William said one of the reasons that they separated was he had issue with her drinking. Oh. And she had to like hide it when she was working as a domestic servant. Mm. So, 12.30 a.m., she left the pub. 1.20 a.m., she returned to her lodging house that she'd been staying in in Whitechapel. At 2.10, the house deputy, which is like the person who they would pay the money to, asked her for four pence for her bed, but she didn't have it. And he said, well, you got to get out of here. And she got her stuff to leave. She didn't seem concerned. She was going to go out and make her money so that she had it to stay. Get that bread, girl. Yes. So she got dressed. She was like, don't worry about it, bud. She didn't say that. And she went out. Deuces, yeah. BRB. And what didn't seem worried. She was going to go make the money and be able to stay somewhere. At 2.30, Nellie, the woman who she was sharing a bed with at her previous lodging house, saw her on Osborne Street. She was drunk. And Nellie tried to get her to come back with her. It was like, hey, just stay with me for the night like you've been in our lodging house bed. Um, Polly refused but still didn't seem concerned. She was like, it's fine. I'm going to make some money and I'll stay in my own bed. Um, so that was... At 2.30. When they ended their conversation, Nellie, Polly, was walking towards Whitechapel Road. That was 2.30. 3.40, an hour and ten minutes later, her body was discovered by a man named Charles Allen Cross, who was a carman, on Bucks Row, which is now called Durward Street. So in that picture, I think I already had you guys look. Bucks Row was the top right. This was our first murder of the canonical five. Canonical. What's, um, What's the street called again? Bucks Row. It's called Durward Street now. D-U-R. D-U-R. W-A-R-D. W-A-R-D. Um, they determined by her body's temperature she'd probably been dead about 30 minutes. Mm. So she left Nellie at 2.30, was probably dead by 3.10, and then found at 3.40. So here are her injuries. She had two cuts across her throat, one of which had severed her tissue to the vertebrae. I think I meant to start our episode with a trigger warning. Warning! <laughs> trigger warning! Gruesome description. I just love that you just yelled warning. Yeah. <laughs> Not, there's no sexual assault. However, there are sexual injuries, I guess we could say. And one of the victims who is not attributed to Jack the Ripper did have sexual assault. So I feel like... Most people have a base knowledge of Jack the Ripper mm. and know that it's not good. Yeah. You can like, you can murders. also find mortuary pictures of the victims, which I have for us. So oh. just know that they're out there if you want to find them. Some of them are just their faces, and it's not too bad. But by the final murder, it's very, very graphic. I mean, so. I'll say that before I 
listened to another podcast about Jack the Ripper. I I thought he was just slitting throats and running off. Oh. I did not know that he was much more into it. Yeah. So when you said that I feel like everybody has a base knowledge of Jack the Ripper, my base knowledge was that he was slitting throats and running off. So not everybody has the same level of base knowledge. So then knowledge. definitely I'm glad I paused okay. on the trail warning. It gets gruesome. Um, I am... We're, we're probably going to need to pause. I need my charger for my laptop. Okay. Sure, did you notice the giant, like, bumblebee is flying around out there? Yeah. At the bottom of the stairs. I was... I took notice because Lacey's supposedly allergic to bees. Yeah, but they don't. Yeah, they don't sting. Me. I don't know. I just saw flying insects. Most insects fly. So is your mom. She's oh, your mom too. Oh, relax. Let me say. So is your mom. Oh. Oh, my monster was in the fridge, right? Yeah. Lacey, would you be a little? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, she has to plug me in. She's the most ugly. I can't be here forever, Lacey. <laughs> So nice when people fight over me. I feel wanted. Does it not happen that often? No. Oh. I mean, let's analyze Lacey's life. She spends most of the time with her mom. But her mom isn't fighting with other people to get Lacey's attention. Yeah. Nobody's trying to drag me from my mom. And then also she spends time with children that probably don't really would be alright if she wasn't there. <laughs> They prefer it, I think. <laughs> Especially your best friend. Not oh. me, I meant your oh. Oh. The sarcastic oh. best friend. That hurt my feelings. <laughs> what? Yeah, I, she looks so you. sad. No, no, I meant your sarcastic best <laughs> yeah. friend thing. I'm with you now. Okay. But she's quite literally not your best friend since you yeah. hate her. Mm. Yes. Okay. I think I, I'm ready. So her injuries. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly where I left off. You I'm mentioned there. that her throat was cut yeah. to the vertebrae. And then we got, we did and the little Yeah, so then okay. you went warning, and so right. you can start so over. Her throat had two cuts, one of which severed tissue all the way to the vertebrae. Her vagina was stabbed twice. And her lower abdomen had been ripped open. Her bowels were protruding from what was described as a jagged wound. Um, every one of the abdomen injuries on these women was described as a jagged wound every time. Um, there were also several additional cuts to the sides of her abdomen, which had all been made by a downward thrusting motion. If you look at slide number six, that is a mortuary picture of her, just of her face. There's only... I think two mortuary pictures we have that's more than just their face. Um, I did look for you guys, but I couldn't find like full bodies of all of them, and I was okay with that. That picture there is where her body was found on Bucks Row. Near all those buildings? Yeah. Um, where that doorway is on the building closest to us, the brick building, it was lying on the street there. And apparently it was so dark because there weren't streetlights everywhere that the man who found her, Charles Allen Cross, didn't immediately realize she was dead. He wasn't sure if she was dead or passed out drunk. Mm. Um, so he flagged down a, not cop, um, constable. And the constable came over, got a little closer, and then discovered the pool of blood. And was like, oh, not good. 
So that was Marion Nichols. I enjoy the word constable. You do? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Other countries have fun names for like police. They just have cop or popo. Yeah. I mean, Popo's but I meant like, well, no, I meant like the <laughs> official name. Uh, like we have police officer, yeah. detective, but then they have like constable. Doesn't Canada have a cool one? Mounties. Yeah, yeah. They're the horses, right? The ones in the horses are Mounties. I don't know. That's what I thought. I thought those were the ones. I'm ignorant to. I also. I'm pretty sure Mounties are the ones on horses in Canada. Yeah, because they're mounting the horses. Yeah. Um, but I like. But um, Not a they also way. have, weird like, thing. the King's Guard. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Cool. Go to slide number seven. I'm going to tell you about Annie Chapman. Okay. This is actually the same picture. Picture of her with her husband and then just kind of zoomed in on her face a little bit from that website that made the picture a little more modern. Her eyes scared me. But she I think like that's she's just... got something in her mouth. Yeah, I think it's just the quality of the pictures that made her eyes a little horrifying. She looks like she oh. has, like, her tongue, like... So, for anybody who didn't do math while I was reading, Marianne Nichols was 43 when she was killed, um, a few days before her birthday. No. Yeah, because she was born on August 26th and died on August 31st, so I lied to you, and it was a few days after her birthday. So, Annie Chapman was born Eliza Ann Smith on September 25th, 1840. I'm not sure when she started going by Annie, but it seemed like a lot of people did go by a middle name, probably because they all had the same names. So Their middle names were also the same, so well, whatever. Well, Eliza Ann Smith, she went if by. If you have like, if we're all named Elizabeth, mm-hmm. I would say Lacey, being the oldest, would claim Elizabeth as her name, and then Bailey would go by her middle name, which would probably be different and, than mine. Well, maybe. Well, for example, Bailey and my grandfather was named Thomas. And he had an older brother named Thomas, but they both went by their middle name. Just seems a little silly to me. Also, didn't one of the founding fathers or something have like six Johns? Probably. What about George Foreman? Doesn't George Foreman have just a whole bunch of George Foreman? Well, so nowadays I don't think it's... I was going to say, back then you could just rename them because there was, what, a 50% chance that they wouldn't make it past five? He's not that old, though. George no, George Foreman, no. Yeah. So he doesn't count in that so, scenario. anyway, Annie Chapman was born Eliza Ann Smith on September 25th, 1840. She was the first of five children. Um, her parents were actually unmarried when she was born in 1840, but they got married in 1842. Her father was a soldier. Um, one of her brothers says she started drinking at an early age. Now, her parents did not name her brother from the list of 20 names. Her brother's name was Fountain. That's... Okay. That's probably why people had to stick to a list back then, because they weren't good at being creative yeah, on their own. That sounds like like one of the celebrity names. I thought it was like, made up. I was like, oh, this website's all. unreliable. Yeah, Fountain. So anyway, said that she, she um, Andy started drinking at an early age. In 1861, when she was 21 years old, her family relocated, but she stayed in London, probably because she was working as a domestic servant, so she just stayed working. Um, in 1863, her father committed suicide. Did he really, though? Hashtag in this Black Dahlia. version, I was going to say, yeah, but I think back then you really could have left and nobody yeah. would ever know what happened to you. So, as long as uh, I forgot. People... I didn't write down how he did, but I'm fairly certain that it was like a found his body thing. Wow. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, the only reason that they found out that Cleo was alive was he wrote a letter. Gave himself up. Yeah. Her father cut his throat. He cut his own throat? Yeah. 
Annie was described as intelligent and sociable, but with a, weak- a weakness for alcohol, especially rum. Rum Wait, was her favorite. Doubling back, just so yeah. uh, her dad slit his throat. Yes. Um, he. I did quick Google that because I forgot to write it down. Got it. He cut his own throat, so for sure he died. He did not just run out on the family okay. to California like Cleo. That would also be such a far journey for them. Hey, also, I don't think that we mentioned it in the Black Dahlia episodes, but Billy in the bowl. Yeah, you're right. I keep, um, we we'll go back and edit it in. Just a quick voiceover. It's in the background very quietly. Billy in the bowl. <laughs> Um, one person who was close to Annie said, quote, I have often seen her the worst for drink. So very intelligent, very sociable, but not a great drunk. Mm. In 1869, she married John James Chapman, who was related to her mother, although I don't know how, just that he was related to her mother. And just like Marianne Nichols, they had a small ceremony with two witnesses. Uh, they lived at various West London addresses for a while, kind of bouncing around. So West London was a much nicer area of London than East then, um, I feel like it was in, like, that current economic atmosphere. It was probably, I don't know, unrealistic to have a big wedding and have all yeah. your friends and family come. Yeah. Um, by 1880, Annie Chapman was sober. She had stopped drinking. Wow. Good for her. Yes. Snaps for Annie. They had three children. Emily Ruth, Annie Georgina, and John Alfred. Now... Annie, Annie Chapman was born Eliza Ann Smith and then named her daughter Annie and then started going by Annie. So I'm confused about her whole trajectory there. But she had a she name named her kid and was like, that actually, I like really love that name. Yeah. I'm going to do it. Um, and, their, and their youngest was John Alfred. John was physically disabled. Oh. They first sought help at a hospital, but later put him in an institution for the physically disabled. He did eventually end up living with a grandparent, too. I'm just not sure when that transition happened. So... She, after John Alfred was born, she gradually began drinking again, and they think it was because of dealing with his disability and then having to give him up. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1882, their oldest, Emily Ruth, died of meningitis when she was 12. She died on John's second birthday. At this point, both parents started drinking heavily. They were both arrested for public intoxication several times. In 1884, they separated, and this was a mutual separation. There was no animosity there, or not enough to research and write about for Mm -hmm. whoever's writing about this anyway. John kept custody of Annie, who was their middle child. Um, Annie Chapman, our mom here, moved to Whitechapel at this time because she couldn't afford to be in West London anymore. And John was paying her weekly allowance of 10 shillings, which was twice as much as Marianne Nichols was getting from her husband for a while. Um, In 1886, John died of cirrhosis of the liver on Christmas. Annie Georgina, who was 13 years old at this point, was either placed in a French institution or she joined a traveling circus. Oh, one or the other. I like the circus. Yeah. Um, Records show that as of 1891, Annie Georgina and John were both living with their grandmother. So at some point, she left the circus or this French institution and he was left this institution that he was in and were taken and were living with her grandmother. That sounds like something that, like, Kids would make up. Yeah. Like, in school, they'd be like, where'd Annie go? I heard she joined the circus. Yeah. Um, so, probably a, a better end for the kids than would have been if they... Stayed. Yeah, if, if Annie Chapman had them. So, Annie Chapman had been living 
strictly off of her husband's allowance with a man. I don't have a name for him. All I know is he made sieves. And he after what? sieves that like sift things, sieves. You, you know when you're pining for, for gold. Oh, yeah. yeah, there you go. Um, he left after John's death, probably because she was no longer getting her allowance. Yeah. Yep. Gold digger. Yes. And he became depressed at this time. Hey, and he made the sifts. Gold uh, digger. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Look. <laughs> It's literal and... It was so good. Such a good one. All right. (laughs) So by June of 1888, so John died 1886 Christmas. June 1888, so about a year and a half later, Annie is living in a lodging house on Dorset Street, um, which was reputed... Reputed. Shit. Which way do you say it? It was reputed to be or reputed to be? Okay. By June of 1888, You're an English I'm going to rephrase the entire sentence. By June of 1888, Annie was living on in a lodging house on Dorset Street, which had a reputation oh. as the worst street in London. Do you want to just like name drop what school you quote unquote teach at, so no. that people know whether or not it's not even to a little send bit. their kids Imagine there? Imagine the emails you could get. Yeah, cool. you're talking shit about my kid. You can't even say reputed. I know, I just can't, you know, sometimes, I don't want to talk about it. sound weird. Yeah, words are hard. So anyway, it was the worst street in London, by reputation anyway, and that is where she was living at this time. Um, She earned income by crocheting and selling her creations, selling flowers, and occasional prostitution. Um, Eight days before she died, she had an altercation with a woman named Eliza Cooper over some soap. She had, they were both staying in this lodging house, and Eliza had allowed her to borrow her bar of soap. And when Eliza went to her and was like, give me my soap, Annie threw down a pence or something and was like, buy some new soap. Mm -hmm. So obviously they fought about that. Um, They had a fight in a pub, which gave Annie a black eye and a bruise on her chest. So it was a fight fight. Yeah, a bruise on her chest? Yeah. she Bitch puncher in the chest? Yes. So not, like, so, like, not, like, a slap, like, no, like, Jerry's fight. It was a pub fight. Brawl. Yeah. Um, so eight days, nope, that was that, eight days before she died. On September 7th, she ran into her friend on the street, Amelia Palmer, um, said that Annie was pale, and Annie told her that she felt ill. Later, her autopsy revealed that her lungs and brain membranes showed, size, showed signs of disease that would have killed her within months. Oh. So Annie was already very sick. September 8th, 1888. I can always tell which one is the death day because of the emphasis. Yes. So, Marianne Nichols, Polly Nichols died on August 31st. This is September 8th. Okay. 12.10 a.m. She was in the kitchen of the lodging house and she had a beer with a fellow lodger in the lodging house. She drank a pint. And she told him that earlier that day she had visited her sister and asked for money and her sister had given her five pence. Um, they had their beer and then she left. <laughs> she came back at 1.35 a.m. with a baked potato. Okay. That's all I have about that. Maybe, she, maybe it's like their ver- the, the olden days version of like running a McDonald's for fries. Yeah, she went yeah. out and came back with a baked potato. Um, she ate it and then left to go make some more money because she had spent her five pence from her sister already. On the potato? On the potato? 
I don't know if she had just spent it. Probably be <laughs> potato and beer, probably, ah. took her five pence. Um, and she needed more money to be able to stay in the lodging house that night. Right. And she said to the fellow lodger, in quotes, I won't be long, brummy. See that Tim keeps the bed for me. And she walked in the direction of Spittlefield's Market. I hate spittle. I don't spittle. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, would it help if I told you it's not spelled like spittle, like spit? It's S-P-I-T-A-L? No. Oh, okay. You should still say it's spittle. <laughs> okay. At 5.30 a.m., a woman named Elizabeth Long saw Annie speaking with a man on Hanbury Street in Spitalfields. Um, she described the man as being over 40 years old, slightly taller than Chapman, who was between 5'2 and 5'5", with dark hair, and said he had a shabby, genteel appearance. Ooh. So he looked like somebody who was from a more well-off family who didn't really belong in the area, but was dressed shabbily, if that makes sense. Um, he was wearing a low-crowned felt hat and dark coat, and Elizabeth Long said she heard him say, Will you? To which Annie replied, Yes. So that was at 5.30. She saw him talking to this man on Hanbury Street. At 6 a.m., her body was found um, near the steps to the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street by the resident, John Davis. So if you look at slide 8, that's Annie's dead face. Um, this, the picture there with the arrow, that was the doorway that would lead back to the yard. And then the picture there is the yard. So there's the fence, the open door. She was found lying almost parallel to the fence, almost at the steps, with her head toward the steps. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so her injuries, her throat had two deep cuts, just like Marianne Nichols. Her abdomen was cut entirely open with a jagged wound. A section of flesh from her stomach had been placed on her left shoulder. And a section of skin, flesh, and her small intestines, so section of skin and flesh and her whole small intestines were placed above her right shoulder. Her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina had been removed, like completely from the scene. This murder sparked panic. So Mary Ann Nichols, some people thought that she was connected to these other two murders we haven't talked about yet but for the most part thought that she was a standalone thing. But this one was immediately connected to her murder and panic. This is when the press started going wild with this case, which we'll talk about later. All right. So, oh, and so she was born, if you look at the map, which is slide number four, 29 Hanbury Street, top middle. That's where she was found. So the first one was Buck's Row, top right, and then 29 Hanbury Street. Okay, so I'm going to move on to Elizabeth Stride, which pictures of her are on slide nine. Oh, she. The one picture looks very look happy. No. That oh, one man. picture that looks modern is from that website again. I don't remember the name of the website. I have to find it. But they take the Victorian photographs and make them modern. That's a really young picture of her. I was going to say, look, she looks prettier in the left photo. Yeah. So Elizabeth Stride. Oh, and I forgot to say, Annie Chapman was 47 when she died. So Marianne Nichols was 43, Annie Chapman was 47. Elizabeth Stride was born Elizabeth Gustafsdaughter. That's, that's not right. Gustafsdaughter. That's closer. Do you um, want it? Is it German? No, Swedish. Swedish. Oh. oh. On November 27th of 1843. Swedish. <laughs> um, she was nicknamed Long Liz. 
and we're not sure why. It might have been <laughs> one theory was given her height, but she was also between five two and five five, so that's not true. I feel like if that picture is accurate, maybe because she had a long neck. Yeah, that's not uh, nice. Well, not mean. You can have a long neck and be not. We're not saying she's ugly. They weren't walking around calling her a giraffe. It also could have been because once she got married, her last name was Stride, which is a word that means like a long step. Mm-hmm. So it could have just been a play on words. But anyway, they called her Long Liz. Born Elizabeth. Born Elizabeth. Um, in a rural village in Sweden. Sweden. She was the second of four children. Her parents were farmers. When she was 16, she left home to work as a domestic servant, still in Sweden. Um, she began working as a prostitute younger than the other victims. So our other victims, they were into adulthood. This was after their families had kind of fallen apart and they fell into prostitution to survive. She was arrested. There's a police record showing her arrested for prostitution in March of 1865. So she was 22 at this time. Um, she was also treated twice for STDs. They don't say when, just that she was. So I guess we should know that about her. In April of 1865, she had a stillborn daughter. In February of 1866, she moved to London. She gave different reasons why. She told some people she moved there for work. She told some people that she had family in London. So we're not really sure why, but she moved there. She learned to speak English and Yiddish. And in March of 1869, she married a man named John Thomas Stride, who was a ship carpenter. He was 22 years older than her. They had a small ceremony and no children. I'm assuming this is when they started calling her Long Liz. I just like that as a nickname. They ran a coffee shop. Do you want us to start calling you Long Lacey? No, it feels like an insult. <laughs> but it's not an insult for her. No, because I think okay. it would be an insult from you. Why? I just feel Oh, like because it. I'm calling her Long Lacey. She feels like it would be an insult. I feel like you guys need to go talk to someone. Like, it's very... It's Do like, we need to go to couples counseling? Yeah, like, it seems like you guys think your relationship is so toxic. We have fun. Um, So they ran a coffee shop. John also continued his carpentry to supplement their income. By 1875, John had sold the coffee shop due to financial hardship. Um, So they were kind of an on-again, off-again thing. Even though they were married, they occasionally would separate. Um, In March 1877, Stride had moved to a workhouse, which is like what Marion Nichols was living in, where you, like, work in exchange for housing. Um, By the 1881 census shows that they had reunited, but by December of 1881, they had permanently separated. No. Yes. Elizabeth um, went to the infirmary for a while for bronchitis, and when she left, she moved into a lodging house. In 1884, John died from tuberculosis. So, in the years following John's death, Elizabeth told a very weird lie to people. She told people that he and two of her nine children, you may recall she had zero children, she told people that her husband and two of her nine children had died in the 1878 sinking of Princess Alice in the Thames River. So, that was a a ship, that was a pretty famous sinking. Um, That she and John were employed on the boat, and she survived by climbing the ship's mast but she'd been kicked in the mouth by another survivor, which was why she stuttered. Apparently, she stuttered. Um, so this just feels to me like such a weird thing to make up to tell people. <laughs> but she did. So I mean, well, I, when I was in third grade, I used to tell people that my uh, teacher was my real mom. So people make up shit. You also, I mean, you also used to tell me that I was adopted. Yeah, I also told our younger brother that uh, we had a fifth sibling that lived in the attic. I remember that. You said you told your bro... Okay, okay. I was like, why? 
No, I I'm, wasn't telling the older brother. Yeah. He would be aware. Yeah, you were a child. She was 41 when yeah. he died. So, uh, anyway. Maybe she has a mind of a child. Maybe also, she for has the an record, imagination. For the record, I never said I was a child. I literally told him that yes yesterday. Okay. She <laughs> Does he still believe it? Yes. Oh, well, and, that seems And like told me I was adopted since, like, we were, like, 15. Still convinced. Um... I don't remember my mom ever being pregnant, so... That's interesting, because every... Like, when we were growing up, people thought we were twins. Mm. Nice way to cover it up. Kidnap a baby that, uh, looks like your child. So, where did, Oh, her weird lie. Okay, so... She's... On her own, she's not getting any support from him because he died. She got some charity from the Church of Sweden in London. She also entered into a relationship with a man named Michael Kidney, which was very tumultuous. I've been using that word a lot with this, and I like it. She filed a formal assault charge against him in April 1887, but she never pursued it, so it was dismissed. She did some house cleaning to make money, some sewing, and turned to prostitution when the other work wasn't enough to keep her lodging house for the evening. She was described as having a very calm temperament, However, she was arrested eight times for drunk and disorderly, um, and also obscene language, which I think is a fun thing to be arrested for. She sometimes used the alias Annie Fitzgerald. Don't know where any of that came from, but she probably saw Annie on that list of 20 names and was Mm -hmm. like, I like that one. Just like Annie Chapman named her daughter Annie and then said, oh yeah, good one. Um, Okay, so September 26, 1888, she separated again from Michael Kidney. And she moved into a lodging house on Flower and Dean Street in Whitechapel. She was doing some cleaning over the next few days to earn her money. September 29th, she cleaned two rooms and earned six pence. Um, At 6.30 p.m., she and a woman named Elizabeth Tanner went to the Queen's Head Pub. And Stride was seen returning to the lodging house alone after that. At 11 p.m., she was seen with a short man with a dark mustache and bowler hat close to Burner Street in Whitechapel. At 11.45 p.m., she was seen with a man wearing a peaked cap, black coat, dark trousers. Um, this was opposite of 58 Burner Street. She stood with him, repeatedly kissed him, and he was overheard saying, you would say anything but your prayers. I don't know what that means. September 30th. Is that... Okay. Yeah, it was the big the fa- eyes. The face she yeah. just gave... I didn't. I I glanced and then immediately looked away because I was scared. August um, August thirty first, Marion Nichols. September eighth, Annie Chapman. September thirtieth, Elizabeth Stride. Before you continue and forget, how old was she at this point? At this point, she is forty four. You sang it. That was nice. Thank you. Um. So twelve thirty five a.m. on September thirtieth, Constable William Smith saw a man wearing a hard felt hat at forty Burner Street carrying a package around 45 centimeters long. That would be 18 inches. Um, Between 1235 and 1245, a dock worker saw somebody who he thought was Elizabeth Stride at the corner of Burner Street. So all these seeings over the last hour or so were all on Burner Street. Um, She was speaking with a man standing with her back against the wall, but didn't seem like trying to get away from him, was just kind of casually leaning. He was of average build, had a long black coat, and he overheard the woman say, no, not tonight, some other night. At 1 a- So that was between 1235 and 1245. So 1235... Well, back up a little bit. At 1145 p.m., she was for sure seen with some man. At 1235 a.m., the constable saw a man with a package, 
And somewhere between 1235 and 1245, this dock worker saw a woman who he thinks was stride. So not 100% positive. At 1 a.m., a man named Louis Dimeschultz drove into Dutzfield's yard, which is located off of Burner Street, with a two-wheeled cart and horse. And his horse shied and veered left because there was an object in the road. And when Louis Dimeschultz got down to check it out, it was Stride's body. So if you look at our map, which is slide four, bottom right corner, Dutzfield's yard. Okay. And if you go to, hold on, I have a picture, slide 10, that doorway there is the entrance to like the alley that would have gone to Dutzfield's yard. The doorway or that gate? The, the gate, yeah, sorry, the gate. Okay, so here are Elizabeth Stride's injuries. She had just a single cut to the throat, which severed her left carotid artery and her trachea. Blood was still flowing from the injury when he got to her body. Her hands were cold, but the rest of her body was warm, and she had no other injuries um, because they believe he was interrupted during the attack. They think that when the horse came when dime schultz and his horse and cart came into the yard they interrupted the attack um this took place near a building and i forgot to write down the name of the building but there were several men in and out between 12 30 and 12 50 told police they had seen nothing going on in the yard at that time okay so that was september 30th so maybe just put a little pin in that you can see in the picture there that's her dead face <laughs> All right, I'm going to tell you about Catherine Eddowes. She looks I'm much gonna pause right here thinner. She does. She doesn't look well. No. Um, she's also been working as a prostitute and stuff. I'm pausing quickly because I wanted to double check that I was saying this one's name right. Okay. Eddowes. Eddowes. Mary Jane Kelly is the last of the canonical, right? Mm-hmm. I think after we go through the last, maybe we finish with Mary Jane for the first episode. And then we start up with our possibles, which when I was, I, I looked ahead, yeah. um, I got to possibles and I thought you meant like possible suspects. Mm-hmm. And so the first one is Emma Elizabeth. And I was like, I feel like I have heard the possibility that it was a woman doing it. And then it was a Martha. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then the next one's a Rose. And I was like, these might be possible <laughs> victims. Mm. Anyway. So now I'm going to tell you guys about Catherine Eddowes. I believe I'm saying her name correctly. I hope so. Uh, she was born on April 4th, 1842. She was the sixth of 12 children. Mm. Um, however, only 10 of these children actually survived to That's adulthood. So Not a bad record. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, yeah. And I was interpreting it in my yeah. head as only two survived. and That's how I yeah. <laughs> Um Her father, George, was a tin plate worker, and her mother, Catherine, was a cook at a hotel. It's 83% of your kids survived. Yeah. What's By 18... I, I wonder if I wrote the number down because I said only 10. That feels like a weird way to do that. Anyway, um, I said I wonder if I wrote down the wrong number because only feels like a weird thing to put in front of 10 out of 12. So, anyway, by 1857, so when she was 15... Um, both of her parents had died. Catherine was placed in a workhouse as an orphan with a few other siblings who were minors yet. Um, and they attended a local industrial school to earn trades while they were there. So it wasn't actually too bad of a situation for them. 
Um, she got a job as a tin plate stamper in Wolverhampton and lived with her aunt while she was doing that work and was able to continue her education. However, she was fired within months, possibly for stealing, although that's not confirmed. And this caused tension with her aunt and she began moving between family members. She was described as very happy, always singing, intelligent, scholarly, but with a bad temper. She began a relationship with a man named Thomas Conway, who was a former soldier. The relationship began in 1861 or 62. They had three children together, Catherine Am, Thomas Lawrence, and another son. And that's what I know about that. They never married, but she did start referring to herself as Kate Conway instead of Eddowes. So, and she got TC, Thomas Conway's initials, tattooed on her left forearm. Aww. Yeah. In 1868, they moved to London, and she started drinking. Do Thomas... you think there was a lot of uh, sanitary, sanitary practices back then with tattooing? No. <laughs> Thomas was a teetotaler, which you hey. may remember means was not a drinker. Not not just like, oh, I don't really like to drink, but like, absolutely cannot drink. And this caused problems with them because now his wife was drinking. Um, by the late 1870s, Catherine would occasionally have black eyes and facial bruising. She left her husband and the two youngest kids. The oldest one, Catherine Ann, had moved out, was on her own by this time. Um, so she left her husband and her two remaining kids in 1880. And by 1881, was living with John Kelly, a fruit salesman. And started calling herself Kate Kelly instead of Kate Conway or Kate Eddowes. I feel um, like she gets attached to her yeah. love interests. As far as I know, she uh, didn't get this one tattooed on her. Maybe she learned from the last one. She started living in a lodging street on Flower and Dean Street. Or a lodging house, rather, on Flower and Dean Street. Which is a street that keeps popping up with these lodging houses. Um, a, the deputy of the lodging house said that she rarely got drunk. She did have a drunk and disorderly charge one time and was brought in front of the probate judge for it, but wasn't even fined for it. So kind of like they decided it wasn't worth it. Yeah. Okay, um, so she was a drinker, but didn't get drunk very often. She performed domestic work. She would um, turn to prostitution now and then to pay rent if she needed to. And they both, she and, was he John or Tom? John Kelly. She and John Kelly would get seasonal work hop picking so like beer hops they would work on like farms and pick the hops so september 80 1888 they had both done their seasonal hop picking work returned home on september 27th and by the next day had spent almost all of the earnings that they had made during their seasonal hop picking work doing what uh drinking oh yeah um so they came home on september 27th she mentioned to the lodging house superintendent this day that they came home, she was going to get the Whitechapel Killer Reward, because a reward had been posted at this time, saying, quote, I think I know him. Hmm. September 28th at 8 a.m., she and John Kelly split their last six pence. They were each going to stay in different lodging houses that night. I don't know why, but they split it, and he was like, you'll go stay in this one with your pence, and I'll stay in this one with my pence. September 29th, Catherine decided to go visit her daughter to try to borrow some money from her. Um, she told John at 2 that she was going to go see her daughter, try to get some money, and she expected to be home by 4. Um, John later was seen like going home and into bed and didn't end up being a suspect in any of this. At 8.30 p.m., Constable Lewis Frederick Robinson observed a group of people, and he went over to see what was going on, and Eddowes was drunk on the ground. 
um, not just a little drunk. He helped her stand up and she fell back down. She was like unable to stand on her own drunk. So he called over another constable to help. They took her to the police station to sleep it off. Um, and when they asked her what her name was, when they checked her in the police station, she said nothing. Like her name is the nothing. word nothing. Yeah. So September 30th. Somebody else was killed on September 30th, if you remember. I do. Um, at 12.30 a.m., she woke up and asked the constable who was in there when she could leave, and he said, when we feel like you're sober enough. And at 1 a.m., she was deemed sober enough to leave. And as she left, she said to the constable on duty, all right, good night, old cock, <laughs> as she walked out. At 1.35 a.m., a man named Joseph Luende, I'm not sure if that's how you say his name, he was a cigarette salesman, he was passing through Mitre Square with two friends, and he described a fair-haired man of shabby appearance with a woman who he thinks was Catherine Edals. His two friends later, when they were interviewed, couldn't confirm that it was her. So we're not sure if this was her or not. Um, she was wearing the right clothes. She was wearing the same clothes that... This woman was wearing the clothes that Catherine had been wearing when she left um, the PlayStation. The man was around 5 foot 7 inches in height. He was wearing a loose-fitting gray jacket gray peaked cloth cap, and a reddish handkerchief. Um, at 1.45 a.m., Constable Edward Watkins discovered um, Kate Edel's body in Mitre Square. So at 1.35, Joseph Lunay and his friends may or may not have seen her. Her body was found at 1.45. This same constable had passed through Mitre Square at 1.30, and the body wasn't there. So... So she was found quick. at 1.45? Yeah. So within 15 minutes, the, she was killed and, and he left, and then the constable found her body. Um, there were watches. There was more watch going on because of these killers that had been going on, as well as a vigilant, uh, like a citizen's watch kind of thing, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about later. So her injuries, her How throat, was she? she was 46. Mm -hmm. Okay. So at 1 a.m., somebody interrupted... Elizabeth Stride being murdered, mm -hmm. and Kate Edels was found at 1.45. What time was Elizabeth interrupted? 1 a.m. Okay, so 45 minutes later. Yes. Her throat was cut ear to ear. Her abdomen was ripped open. Her intestines were placed over her right shoulder. One section had been detached and was placed on the ground between her body and her left arm. Her left kidney and part of her uterus had been removed completely from the crime scene. And her face was disfigured. This was the first time that we had facial disfigurement. Her nose had been severed. Her cheek was slashed. There were vertical cuts through each of her eyelids. One of them was a quarter of an inch and one was a half an inch. There was a triangular incision carved in each of her cheeks with the point, like the apex of the triangle, pointing at her eyes. A section of her right ear was discovered in her clothing, and they actually think that was a mistake, and that in his frenzy, he accidentally cut off a piece of her ear, and it just kind of fell into her clothing. How? I don't just, know. Of, of all of what happened, how could they, like, look at that and be like, oh, that must have been a mistake. Yeah, I have no idea. Like, um, that doesn't seem... The police surgeon who examined her body determined that just her facial, her face mutilations would have taken at least five minutes to complete. If we look at our next slide, slide number 12, this is, so that's Mitre Square where she was found. There's even a horse and a two-wheeled cart there in the picture. And that is her face after the autopsy. So she has been, like, stitched back up yeah. at this point. 
at 255, so this was 145, mm-hmm. at 255, a section of her bloody apron was found at the entrance to a tenement on Golston Street in Whitechapel. So if you look at the map, which is back here on slide number four, so Mitre Square is where she was found. So at 1 a.m., Elizabeth Stride was found in Dutfield Yard, bottom right. Bottom left, Mitre Square, is where Kate Ed Alice was found um, at 145. And then 255, up there, a little bit above Mitre Square, Golston Street, this was where a piece of Kate Ed Alice's bloody apron was found. So it was found at the entrance to a tenement there by a constable. He had been past that spot 30 minutes prior and didn't see it there. There was a chalk inscription on the wall directly above where the apron was found that said, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Jews was spelled wrong. They are unsure if this inscription was put there, J-U-W-E-S. Oh, okay. They don't know if this inscription was put there as part of the apron and like a a thing, or if it just happened to be there because graffiti was not uncommon Mm. in the area. This became known as the Golston Street Graffito. Um, so that, yeah, they don't know if that was there by the murderer or if it was completely unrelated. Um, police commissioner Charles Warren was afraid that this would spark riots because the Jews, um, and he had the graffiti washed away before the sun came up. This, um, stride and Edels became known as the double event because they happened on the same night. Yeah. And they assumed it was because stride was interrupted. Yeah. And that would make sense as to why she was mutilated so much worse because he was frustrated. Yeah. Yep, so they think that that all fits. All right, on to our last of the five canonical victims, Mary Jane Kelly. Uh, so you can go to wherever she is. 13. I'm all over the place here. Yeah, so I couldn't find any actual pictures of her. This was an artist rendering. She was younger than the other women. I don't think that comes clear in the picture, but whatever. Um, Mary Jane Kelly was born um, in, 18, in or around 1863. Now... Her origins are unclear because they're not documented, and the stuff that she told people may have been fabricated. So I'm going to give you background on her. Take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, they said there was not a lot of evidence confirming her stories, but also not a lot of evidence disproving it either. So it is what it is. Mary Jane Kelly, over time, took on the nicknames Fair Emma, Dark Mary, and Black Mary. Where did Emma come from? I don't know. Hey, wasn't oh also ginger she She might have had red hair um wasn't there a kelly in the last tom kelly or um oh john kelly was a guy that she hooked up with unrelated to mary jane kelly Kelly yeah also mary if you can't pick that up Mm -hmm. so um she was born in ireland she told people that she was born in ireland um, we mostly feel like this is true because when she was in England, she was getting, um, correspondence that was coming from Ireland. Also, isn't Kelly like an Irish name? Mm-hmm. And then also if she's Irish, Molly Redhead. Ginger. Yeah. Maybe. I'm going to, I'm going to stomp that, stamp that with. Approved. Yeah. So we do think it's probably true that she was born in Ireland around 1863. Um, She said that she had seven brothers and one sister, and that her family was moderately wealthy. She claimed her parents disowned her, but she was still close with a scholar. She was described... That wasn't a word. She claimed that her parents disowned her, but she was still close with a sister. 
She was described as an excellent scholar Mm. and an Mm. artist, but somebody who was living, um, like a neighbor where she lived her last couple months, said that she asked him to read newspaper articles to her about the Whitechapel murders, so she might have been illiterate. Because she wasn't just reading them herself. She was like, hey, can you... Well, English language is hard. Yeah. Um, Some newspaper accounts after she died called her Mary McCarthy. That was probably just a mix-up because her landlord's last name was McCarthy. Mm. And apparently the press couldn't do a damn thing right at this time period, so they were all confused. She was reported as being blonde or redhead. Ginger. Um, She was five foot seven, so she was taller than any of our other victims. Um, A man, a detective walker... No... A detective, Walter Drew, um, wrote an autobiography later on um, and said that he knew her by sight. A lot of people in the area knew her by sight because she was very beautiful and buxom. The boobies. What? Oh. The boobies. Um, quite attractive, buxom, always wore a clean apron, hmm. as a good lady should. In 1879, <laughs> she married a coal miner named either Davis or Davies. And he was killed a few years later in a mining explosion. At this time, she moved in with a cousin, and this is probably when she began working as a prostitute. However, she was working at a high-class brothel in the West End of London. Oh! Yes, in the early to mid-1880s. And she was one of the most popular girls at this brothel. She used this money to buy expensive clothing and even hired a carriage to take her around. Good so she was like a hired escort kind of situation. Yes. Um, a, a particular repeat client named Francis Craig invited her to go to France with him. Mm-hmm. And she went, but came back within two weeks and said that she didn't enjoy the life there. Mm-hmm. But she did start going by Marie Jeanette at this time instead of Mary Mary Jane. Yeah. You know how some people like go to a place and then pick up an accent? Yeah. yeah she did that. Like the same thing. Um, in 1885, her descent into the East End life began, and we believe this happened very quickly, because the mid to or the early to mid 1880s, she was working in the West End at a brothel. Um, but they believe that she was trying to avoid rep- retribution from a procurer, which was basically a pimp. Oh. Um, and she went to somebody who she had given an expensive dress to and demanded the dress back, so then she could sell the dress for money and. They think that it was just a quick spiral down. Mm-hmm. At this time, she also started drinking heavily. Mm-hmm. By 1886, she was living in a lodging house in Spitalfields, Cooley's Lodging House. Um, she met a man there named Joseph Barnett in April 1887. And on their second date, they called it their second meeting. It was their second date. Um, they decided to live together. They did, a few months later, get evicted from where they were living for non-payment and being drunk and disorderly. In February or March of 1888, they moved into 13 Miller's Court. This was just a single room. It was 12 foot square. It had a bed, three tables, and a chair. There was a small tin bath under the bed, and there were two windows. Um, She lost her door key. So what she did was drunkenly punched a hole in a window by the door. And then they just had, like, a curtain there. And when she needed to get in or out, she would just reach in through the broken window and unlock the door to get inside. Lock it behind her when she went out. Yeah, exactly. Um, She did tell friends at this point that she was getting tired of her life and wanted to go back to Ireland. She was described as being very quiet when sober, but noisy and abusive when drunk, which could have been where the nickname Dark Mary when Black Mary came from, describing her temper. Mm -hmm. 
So, in July 1888, Barnett got fired from his job and Mary started working as a prostitute again, but no longer high-end brothel, just prostitute in the East End. Um, she would allow other prostitutes to sleep in their room on cold nights. Is that cold night? It was July. So that throws me off, but I don't know. London, I mean, nighttime, sometimes it gets yeah, cold. It she felt bad and didn't want them sleeping on the street, so she would let these prostitutes sleep in their room. Um, Thomas Barnett didn't like this. Was he Thomas? or He was Joseph. Joseph Barnett didn't love coming home in the evening and finding prostitutes sleeping in his bed. So they fought about it quite a lot. Um, and he ended up moving out on October 30th. However, they stayed together and he would often come over to visit. Um, on November 8th, Barnett visited from 7 to 8 p.m. When he got there, her friend Maria, Maria Harvey was there and he and Maria left at the same time. Um, another friend named Lizzie Albrook also visited before he left and said that when she was there, Mary was still sober. And Mary said to her, whatever you do, don't you do wrong and turn out as I have. Early that evening, she was seen at the Ten Bells pub having a drink. Just one drink. She didn't get drunk. Later, she was seen drinking with two acquaintances at Horn of Plenty pub on Dorset Street. At 11.45, her neighbor Marianne Cox saw Mary return home drunk with a man. Uh, he was stout, ginger-haired, approximately 36, which feels like a weird approximate age. He had a black felt bowler hat, thick mustache, blotches on his face, and was carrying a can of beer. Um, Mary said goodnight to Mary and said that she was going to go do a bit of singing. And when Mary Ann Cox left her home at midnight, she could hear Mary in her room, the guy that came in with her, and she was singing, which she was described as being somebody who sang a lot. And when Mary returned home at 1 a.m., she still heard the singing. She returned home briefly and left and came back at 3 a.m. At this point, she didn't hear any singing anymore. She did think that she heard somebody leaving around 5.45. Okay? Um, November 9th. At 2 a.m., Mary runs into a man named George Hutchinson on Flower and Dean Street and asked him to borrow some money. So when Marion Cox at 11.45 saw Mary coming home with a man, I don't think we're supposed to suspect this man. I think he was a client because then Mary was out later that night, okay. early morning, talking to other people. So at 2 a.m., she ran into a friend named George Hutchinson on Flower and Dean Street. She asked him if she could borrow six pence. He said, I don't have any money. Um, and as she walked away from him, he saw a man approach her. And he said that she seemed to know the man. He had a Jewish appearance, which I'm putting in quotes. Uh, he was 34 or 35 years old, and Hutchinson was suspicious of him because he seemed to be dressed too well for the area and seemed to be trying to hide his face from Hutchinson. He said that Mary complained about losing her handkerchief, and he gave her his own red handkerchief. There was a reddish handkerchief before I guess we weren't excited. there was also a, another guy that seemed out of place yes. yeah. um and he and george hutchinson heard a mary say to this man all right my dear come along you will be comfortable he then followed them back to her place at 13 miller's court and watched their door for another 45 minutes before he left and went on his way he gave such a detailed description to the police down to the color of the man's eyelashes that the police think he was actually lying but like for attention they think that he saw her and this man but that he was like so excited to be involved in the investigation that he was making up details 
Oh. Yeah, so helpful. Why why would you need to ever say the color of someone's eyelashes? Right. Like, the description was, especially because they said it's so dark, there's no, like, street lights and stuff. He had long black eyelashes. And also said he tried to hide his face from him. But then he saw his eyelashes. Well, you could see They were just so long that you could see them. Yeah. So, anyway, that that was at 2. Um, 2.45 is when he stopped just watching her door and left. Um, at 2.30 a.m., a woman named Sarah Lewis was walking to 2 Miller's Court. So Mary Jane lived at 13. Sarah Lewis was walking to 2 Miller's Court to meet up with a friend that she was going to stay overnight. And she said she saw two or three people standing near a pub. Now, she didn't see any of these people enough to know who they are, but the timing kind of matches up. Two or three people standing near a pub. There was a respectably dressed man with a dark mustache talking to a woman, and they both seemed drunk. Another man stood watching them from across the street. Between 3.30 and 4 a.m., this Sarah Lewis, who stayed overnight at Two Millers Court, and a woman named Elizabeth Prater, or Prater, who lived directly above Mary Jane Kelly, they both heard a faint cry of murder, but they ignored it because it was common in Whitechapel. Um, and when Elizabeth Prater left at 5.30 a.m. to go to the pub, she saw nothing suspicious. At 10.45 a.m., the landlord sent his assistant, Thomas Boyer, to collect rent because Mary Jane was six weeks behind on rent. So Thomas Boyer knocked. He got no response. He tried the door and it was locked. So he reached his hand through the broken window and moved the curtains to the side and saw her body. Um, he went to the landlord they got the police there and stuff and for whatever reason they did not break the door down and go inside uh or un- they didn't go inside however they got in until 1 30 p.m like they were there the police were there they knew there was a murder um there was some talk of trying to get bloodhounds to track like the to follow the trail from the door and they're like well that won't work i don't know why it took them so long to go in but they did Joseph Barnett, the man who she'd been in a relationship with, was asked to identify her. He could only identify her by her ear and her eyes. Her injuries are very severe. and if you, I can identify you by your ear. Yeah. If you want to go to slide 14, there is a picture from the crime scene. Um, first, the picture is of a building that she had that corner room there. So those windows actually looked into her room. That is her body on the bed. Um, no, that's not a face. Mm-hmm. That's... Her face was, in quotes, hacked beyond all recognition. Her throat was cut down to the spine. Her breasts were cut off. Her arms were mutilated by jagged wounds. Her abdomen had been ripped open and completely emptied. Uterus, kidneys, and one breast were placed beneath her head. Other organs and tissues were placed beside her foot and just around uh, on the bed. Sections of her abdomen and her thighs were on a bedside table. And you can actually see that in the picture. Um, Her heart was missing from the scene. It was the only organ that was missing from the scene. Um, Ashes in the fireplace indicate that the the killer had been burning her clothing to illuminate the room while he worked. Because otherwise the only light in there was from a single candle. So they believed he was just burning her stuff to keep a fire going so he could see what he was doing. The fire was a tense... The fire was intense enough to melt, like the, I can't think of the word, but like the weld between a kettle and its spout, Mm. and the spout like fell off of the kettle into the fire grate, so that's how hot the fire was. The autopsy took um, about two and a half hours, determined death had occurred between 2 and 8 a.m., and the mutilations would have taken around two hours to perform. 
So this was the only victim that he had this time with because he wasn't out on the street. He was in a room. Um, so she was the last of the canonical five. All of the murders were committed at night. All of the murders were committed on or close to a weekend and seemed to be and were committed the end of a month or about a week after the end of a month. May or may not be important. Um, and there was very obvious escalation in these murders, except for Stride, but they believe that her murder was interrupted. Right. Um, Nichols, our first one, she wasn't missing any organs. Chapman was missing her uterus and sections of her bladder and vagina. Et al.'s uterus and left kidney were removed. She was the first one with the face mutilated. And then Mary Jane Kelly's face was severely mutilated and had multiple organs removed, although her heart was the only organ that was actually missing. So the reason that they believe the murders stopped after Mary Jane Kelly, those who believe that the canonical five were his, is because either the killer died, was imprisoned, was institutionalized, or left the country. So there are um, six other victims. Do we want to wait and do them in part two? I think that's a good idea. Okay, because we spent a lot of time with our first victim. So I'm going to tell you about the other potentials, the maybes, the probably nots, and then tell you guys about the investigation. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, that was Sinister. We were sarcastic. And we hope you keep listening. Follow our Instagram at Sinister underscore and underscore sarcastic for show updates. And we also post each episode with some photos. We are always looking for new, interesting show ideas. So if you have any folklore, true crime, or mysterious cases for us to cover, please feel free to DM us on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the show and want to purchase some merch to show your support, you can find a link on our Instagram. 